Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. By the end of the 90s, rock music was deep in the doldrums. Fans were genuinely worried for its future, and it did look bleak, especially in contrast to how exciting things had been earlier in the decade. But in 98 and 99, rock was under assault from three sides. Pop music was king, and the whole world had gone crazy for those sounds. Then there was rap and hip-hop, which kept getting more popular and stronger every month. And then there was electronica, which was siphoning away rock fans to go dance in a warehouse somewhere. It was dire. And lots of rock fans were, well, despondent. It was around then when rock music was deep in the doldrums that I wrote a newspaper op-ed. It was a pep talk of sorts. And it was called Britney Spears, The End Is Nigh. And basically, I said, there were cycles in pop music that go back to the 1950s. They describe a fight between rock and pop. When one is at its height, the other is at its low in terms of popularity. And yes, pop is hot right now, but rock will come back. And if you look at the history of these cycles, rock should be ready for a big comeback in about two years. Turns out I was right. And the artists that led the comeback were a bunch of unknowns at the time who had fresh ideas. This is part two of our look at the music of the aughts, and I call this episode The Indie Revolution. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second episode in our examination of the history of the music of the first decade of the 21st century. You might call them the zero zeros, but I call it the aughts. Yeah, very English of me, I know. Episode one and the prologue to this show was full of moaning about the state of rock at the beginning of the decade. We had to do this because things really did seem hopeless. Now, though, things will get much less whiny and more positive. If you look back on the history of popular music, you'll see that every 10 years or so, something happens to disrupt everything. This goes all the way back to the birth of rock, which itself was hugely disruptive. It was all dismissed as a fad back in the 50s, but that turned out to be not true, right? The Beatles and the rise of the album changed everything in the 1960s. Then came punk in the 70s, followed by the ascent of hip-hop and rap in the 80s, as well as the appearance of music video channels. Then came the alt-rock explosion of the 1990s. And if we examine all those disruptions, we find this brutal truth about rock's place in the music cycle. Sometimes the mainstream has to get so bad that a new generation decides, right, if it's going to be fixed, I'm going to have to do it myself. What we traditionally end up with is a bunch of young people taking things back to the basics, stripping it down, starting again. And this is exactly what happened out of sight of the mainstream at the end of the 1990s and the start of the aughts. And four bands led the way. The underlying catalyst for the overall indie revival of the aughts was another smaller scene, the garage rock revival that began in the very late 1990s. The first hopeful indication I remember hearing something about was music from a bunch of trust fund kids in New York. All the hipsters and whatever passed for music blogs in those days were onto these guys. The Strokes were formed in 1998 and had by the end of the decade worked up a set of about a dozen songs. Those who followed them characterized what they were doing as a form of garage rock, a fresh take on the same back-to-basics approach that we saw with punk in the 70s and grunge in the early 90s. It was cool stuff, but no American record label was interested. 
They were making zillions off their pop acts, and that's where all their attention and all their money was going. So the Strokes did what Nirvana and the Pixies had done a dozen years earlier, and what the Ramones did a dozen years before that. They took their act to England, where they received a much warmer welcome. The Strokes started by sending a demo to Rough Trade Records in London, and they agreed to release an EP called The Modern Age, which was released on January 29, 2001. It was so popular that Rough Trade struggled to keep enough of these EPs in stock in stores. That got the attention of the American labels who started a bidding war. The eventual result was a full album entitled Is This It? The UK got it right away, July the 30th. North America got it October 9th. And once you heard this, you thought, you know what? Maybe the rock scene doesn't seem so hopeless anymore. The Strokes with Last Night from their debut record, Is This It, from October 2001. Now, before we go any further, we have to address the situation immediately following 9-11. Like we've been saying, happy, dancey pop music was dominant through 2000 and 2001. But after the attacks in New York and Washington and the subsequent opening of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, happy, dancey pop music was suddenly completely out of step with the zeitgeist. It just seemed inappropriate, given the circumstances, you know? Music always reflects what's happening in the world at large. To put it another way, music is downstream from social conditions and attitudes. And while pop's momentum would carry its upward trajectory for another year or so, its days were numbered. People just weren't in the mood for this happy dancey stuff. This shift went hand in hand with one of those demographic time bombs that we see every 10 years or so. Generation X, the generation that fueled the alt-rock of the 1990s, had aged into their adult years. But behind them was an even larger cohort that demographers used to call Generation Y. Today, we call them Millennials. This group of people was born between the early 80s and the late 90s. They grew up during years of economic prosperity. This was also a generation that went through the usual music evolution. The first type of music the majority gravitated towards was pop, which has always been the case. That's what always happens. But as they got older, they began to look for something a little more meaningful and deep. And then, bam, 9-11. Shocked them into a reality that wasn't happy or dancey at all. Tastes turned to music that was harder, more raw, more authentic. Now, remember when I said that there were four bands at the center of this revival? Strokes were first. Second was the Hives. They were from Fegersta, Sweden, and had been hanging around in some form or another since 1989. Their debut album, Barely Legal, came out in 1997. Then came Vini Vidi Vicious in the spring of 2000. At first, though, it just kind of sat there and did nothing. But it turns out it was ahead of its time. When The Strokes got going in North America with their debut record in October 2001, the Hives album was re-released in April 2002. And now, the world was ready for songs like this. The Hives, with Hate to Say I Told You So from their album Vini Vidi Vicious. 
The third of our important bands when it came to the origins of the indie revival of the early aughts is The Vines. They were born in Sydney, Australia in 1994, and for all of the 90s, they remained almost completely invisible. Nobody cared about these guys. But then, a single in November 2001. The hype was incredible. That was enough for The Vines to get an offer to fly to Los Angeles to record a debut record. In October 2002, they appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone. The headline was, Rock is Back, Meet the Vines. They met the criteria. They had a name that began with The, which was the thing at the time. They played shouty, riffy, punky songs. And they had a look and attitude that music journalists, desperate to resurrect rock, could get behind. Their story was helped by the fact that they had an eccentric frontman in the form of Craig Nichols. Craig smoked a lot of dope. He maintained that he had to eat at McDonald's at least once a day. He was volatile in interviews and on stage. Now, to say the dude was erratic was something of an understatement. He was a handful. Later, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is a form of autism, which explained a lot. In the meantime, though, the music was good. It was good. The Vines and Get Free from 2002. The fourth of our garage rock revival bands that kickstarted the indie revival of the early aughts was the White Stripes. And of course, their story is well known by now. A former altar boy and furniture upholsterer and the youngest child in a Detroit family of 10 meets a shy non-musical bartender. They fall in love, they get married, they start jamming together, pretend that they're brother and sister and start releasing stripped down bluesy garage rock music on a series of indie labels. Like the Strokes, the first serious attention came from England. In fact, I was introduced to them by a guy in the Notting Hill location of Rough Trade Records. When I asked him what was new and cool in the shop, he handed me a copy of the White Stripes' Distill album from 2000. This is what everybody is raving about, mate. And they're from your neck of the woods, too. The first three White Stripes albums were underground and hipster favorites. Then came a fourth album. It was called Elephant. And after a slow start... It became the monster that we're still talking about today. If you had to pick the single most played indie rock song of the aughts, I would guess that was it. The White Stripes and Seven Nation Army from their 2004 album, Elephant. The garage rock revival did a lot to get rock back into the spotlight in the early aughts. And we will come back to the fallout from this a little bit later on. But suffice to say for the moment that the White Stripes, the Vines, the Hives, and the Strokes got people in the mood for more rock of this sort. And it only got better from there. More in a second. This is the second part of a series of programs on the history of alt-rock in the aughts, that decade between 2000 and 2009. As more and more millennials aged into their coming-of-age musically years, the more people started realizing the power of rock again. And they were also coming into contact with this music in ways never before seen in human history. Millennials were the first true internet generation. If you're part of this group, you may have never known a world without the internet, and by 2004, the internet was affecting music and music fans in ways that no one could have ever anticipated. In the olden days, 
They were powerful cultural filters, you know, record labels and radio stations and record stores. Wisdom was that if you weren't on a major label, well, you weren't very good and therefore not worth anyone's time. If the song wasn't on the radio, well, then it didn't deserve to be because it wasn't very good. And if you couldn't find it at the record store at the mall, well, same thing. Then again, maybe you didn't even know about it. But let's harken back to the last program and the whole Napster phenomenon. Peer-to-peer file sharing, legal or not, was a way for everyone to get access to a universe of music that had largely been out of sight, totally invisible. Here is a central truth about Napster. There was something very exciting about finding a person who had musical tastes just like you. You'd look in their library and see what else they had. And if you both liked band X, well, what else did you have in common? And that led to all kinds of new discoveries, including a lot of off-the-radar indie bands, bands that weren't generally available to a lot of people around the world. Then there was the concept of being able to sample new music for free. In the past, buying an album from a new unknown band was a total gambit. Again, a band you'd never heard of before. And it cost you 15 or 20 bucks. Now, if you heard an artist through file sharing and were curious about what the rest of their stuff sounded like, all you had to do was fire up your computer, search them out, download, and listen for free. Now, I'm going to be honest. I used file sharing this way, especially when it came from bands from overseas. I'd read about a group or a song in the NME or Q Magazine or whatever, and instead of ordering something blind from my local record store, they would never have it in stock, I would just look for the song online, give it a listen, and grab it. Now, remember, this was before streaming. It was before YouTube. And even iTunes was in its infancy and didn't have a lot of this product. Illegal peer-to-peer file sharing was pretty much the only way to find music online. It was a fantastic way of music discovery. I know that seems primitive now, but it was true. Let me give you a concrete example. This is a personal example of how it worked. I had read about an English band called Black Box Recorder in the British music press. The lineup included a member of the Jesus and Mary Chain, a band I really like, so, you know, that was cool. I couldn't find any of their CDs in my usual record stores. They didn't seem to have any North American releases. And yeah, I could order the import through my record store or through Amazon, but that would have cost 35 or 40 bucks. So no. So after Napster, I went and I found it in about 20 seconds. An English man called Black Box Recorder with a single entitled The Art of Driving. And once I found that on Napster, I was led to similar bands, which I then sampled. And almost half of them were not signed to any major record label. This experience was repeated millions and millions of times by people looking for new and cool music. The internet had delivered them from the traditional cultural gatekeepers, and it made it possible for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of indie bands to be discovered. This, in turn, strengthened the positions of indie artists at indie record labels within the industry. That old chestnut that you had to be on a major label to be considered any good? That broke down real fast. 
and it became very cool to be associated with an indie. While the majors were being battered by file sharing and falling market share, the indies were just bobbing and weaving, doing whatever they had to do to survive. And in the process, they gave us some pretty amazing music that caught the attention of substantial numbers of people. A new sort of thinking began to propagate. Major labels bad, indie labels good. Now, I know that's a really simplistic attitude that's full of holes, but a lot of fans felt that way. They felt that the financial issues being visited upon the majors with the rise of the internet was karma for years of overpriced CDs, one-sided record deals that screwed artists, and an overall contempt for artists and fans. The new conventional wisdom was that indie labels were doing God's work, and they were the saviors of rock and roll. These were non-corporate labels run by people who actually cared about music. Again, simplistic, often unfair, but there's no denying that that was the way a lot of people thought. Take the case of Vancouver's Mint Records. They'd been fighting the good fight since 1991, trying to be an outlet for up-and-coming local artists. And they had some decent, albeit modest, success. And then came the new pornographers. They were formed in Vancouver in 1997 and started releasing albums through Mint in 2000. That first record, Mass Romantic, won a Juno Award for Best Alternative Album. And it was also voted up high in a variety of international year-end critics' polls, including Rolling Stone. This, obviously, gave even more attention and more momentum to what was going on in the indie universe. From Vancouver, mass pornographers recording for the indie label Mint Records and advancing the cause for all indie bands in the earliest years of the 21st century. Another band that was sprung largely by the internet was Arcade Fire, a band nurtured by a North Carolina label called Merge. Merge had been struggling along since 1989 before they encountered Arcade Fire, which, thanks to music blogs and file sharing, built a massive online following that eventually moved into the offline world. Arcade Fire became one of the most talked about and most celebrated bands on the planet. Grammys, Junos, Brits, the Polaris Music Prize. They turned into festival headliners. Saturday Night Live gave them a weird post-musical guest spot, something that had never been done before. They recorded and toured with David Bowie. U2 used one of their songs as entrance music for a tour. Now, that's great, but they didn't sell a lot of records. In fact, the numbers were shockingly low compared to what a band of their stature might have moved in the 1990s. But what matters was that people were paying attention. And the net result was, just as with the Strokes and the White Stripes, the more attention Arcade Fire got, so did the tide rise for all of indie rock. All right, back to the idea of rising tides raising all boats. As indie artists became more and more popular, and as the strength and influence of indie labels grew and grew, other independent acts started to see their fortunes improve. Take the case of the Black Keys. Dan Auerbach and Patrick Carney first got together in 2001 in Akron, Ohio, and they released a series of independent albums that were generally well-reviewed, but didn't receive much attention outside of a tight circle of fans. 
Now, we're going to return to the Black Keys later on in the series. But right now, let's go back to the mid-aughts before their breakthrough. They were recording for a label called Fat Possum. They were working out of an abandoned tire warehouse that they rented for $500 a month. And they were recording on used gear using recycled recording tape. Their 2000 album was entitled, surprise, Rubber Factory. Makes sense. And this was a single. It's 10 a.m. automatic. You got pain. The Black Keys, before their breakthrough, their contemporaries at the time included Vampire Weekend, we had The National, Interpol, The Hold Steady, and Gaslight Anthem. Good lineup of bands, and there was much, much more to come. Coming up next, Britain's contribution to the indie revolution. While North American indie labels were on the ascent, British labels and their acts were also doing well. UK indie labels have always been a major factor when it comes to breaking new music, especially since the punk era in the 1970s. There was Rough Trade and Two-Tone and Stiff, Mute, and dozens of others. That number includes Domino, a London-based label founded in 1993 that just kind of toddled along for the rest of the decade. They and their roster really weren't part of the Britpop thing, so Domino was, well, marginalized during that time. But they still had enough credit and success to keep the lights on. Their big break came in 2005, when a very young, very erudite, very internet-conscious band out of Sheffield came to their attention. The Arctic Monkeys started by giving away their music at gigs and didn't care when fans put their songs up for free on MySpace. Indie labels started taking notice, and eventually the group ended up with Domino, and the band's very first single, through the label, debuted at number one on the British singles charts. The Arctic Monkeys, their debut album, Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not, set a record for the fastest-selling debut album in the history of British music. That includes beating out Oasis. And remember, this band started by giving away their music. The very same month the Arctic Monkeys debuted at number one on the UK singles charts, this is October 2005, another indie band and another group on the Domino roster ended up at not just number one on the UK charts, but in the top ten in America. That was Franz Ferdinand's second album, You Could Have It So Much Better. Other artists saw success too. Block Party, Editors, Bat for Lashes, The Kooks, Baby Shambles, Libertines, Editors. A lot of them saw their fortunes rise in 2004, 2005, and 2006. Here's another example. The Kaiser Chiefs are from Leeds and released a debut record in 2005 called Employment. Here's a single from that, released on a label called BU. Kaiser Chiefs and I Predict a Riot from 2005. Another example of the kind of indie rock that rose up in the first decade of the 21st century, helping to push rock in general to the top of the public's attention once again. All right, let's summarize things where we are with our history of alt-rock and the aughts. 
a new generation of young musicians with a tendency to play stripped-down rock started releasing material through a variety of indie labels on both sides of the Atlantic. Simultaneous to this was a financial crisis among the major labels caused by the rise of illegal file sharing and the drop in CD sales. That part of the industry began to shrink slowly before turning into what seemed to be an endless, tragic downward spiral. CD sales started to tank. Piracy was on the rise. Meanwhile, Generation Y, Millennials, was aging out of its pop music years, looking for something a little more authentic than the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. These people were also the most internet-savvy generation the universe had seen to that point. They were able to find their way around online when it came to looking for music, something brand new. At the same time, many were too young to have credit cards or enough money to buy as many CDs as they wanted. That fueled the piracy boom. And in the process, they uncovered and started sharing a lot of music that wasn't in the mainstream or from major labels. There was also the prevailing attitude among some that major labels were bad, passe. The really good music, and everybody knew this, was coming from indie labels. Add all this together, and you end up with the indie revolution of the aughts, which continues even today. However, there were still monster legacy artists from the 20th century that weren't about to go away quietly. Many of them also turned out to have a very, very good decade. And those are the people we'll look at on part three of this history of alt-rock in the aughts. I have a website you should check out. It's a journalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free daily newsletter. We have podcast versions of this show. They're free and available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and basically anywhere you can get your podcasts. Please rate and review if you get a chance and share them too. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So give me a follow so we can keep in touch. And my email is alan at alancross.ca. Technical productions for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.